I'm Eddie Aragon, The Rock of Talk, with me, uh, Jeffrey Candelaria, and straight talking right here in the Kiva, straight to your brain, straight to your mind, straight to your heart. Uh, he's going to lay it all on the line, and we've got a little bit of a uh, cool guest here. I wish you would have brought his his best friends, because you would might be listening to the entirety of it and said, uh, with your best friend. And we'll be talking about that as we go into straight talk. Jeffrey Candelaria, take it away. Very good. Thank you again, Eddie Aragon, for producing the show, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Thanks to Eddie. We're with you ev- and the sponsors, of course, my sponsors, our sponsors. We're with you every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. on Kiva 1600 AM. Don't forget to download the Rock of Talk app on your smartphone. Tell your friends about this show. Uh, Eddie and I produce, I think, one of the most authentic, interesting shows in the state. My guest today, and by the way, this topic is something that's is of extraordinary interest to me personally, especially because when we had pets, when I was a kid, we had pets as tools and functionality as opposed to members of our family. So we're going to talk even about culture and pets. But the topic today is, on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candler, is the psychology of pets, particularly dogs, from the perspective of your pet and also the perspective, the psychology based on the perspective of, as you, uh, of you as the owner or master of your dog or pet. And with me today is not just a dog trainer, but Eddie Sanders, my guest, is a dog behavioralist. So he really understands uh, the architecture of the mind of, of a dog. And we're going to focus mostly on dogs today. And he understands the psychology of dogs. And believe me, since I've been uh, subject to his training for the last three months with my Springer Spaniel, Bentley, my dog, and his behavior has really become very structured. He's a very well-behaved dog. Now we still have some issues, but welcome uh, to Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria, Mr. Eddie Sanders. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you. It's nice to be on the show. It's one of my first talk shows, so it's nice to talk and get to people about uh, dog behavioralism and the psychology behind it, because you can uh, throw a rock and hit a dog obedience trainer and teach you the commands and the um, I know it offends a lot of people, which I call circus tricks. Um, so it's nice to have be on a, a platform to get out there, especially to the conservative followers here on the show. Um, so I guess let's get started. Absolutely. So you make a point right off the bat, by the way, if you want to bring your microphone just a little closer to you, thank you, and speak directly into the microphone. Thank you. Um, you mentioned something really interesting. When I was a kid, you know, and we'll talk about culture and, and, and pets later, but I just want to introduce this first construct. We taught our dogs tricks, literally, you know, like conditioned response, like Pavlov's dog. Here's yep. a bone, raise your leg, raise yep. your hand, raise your paw, whatever. So that wasn't really training a dog to serve a function other than it was a trick. So talk right away about the difference between training your dogs for a particular kind of behavior versus circus, circus tricks, to your point. Well, the biggest one that comes to my head right away is uh, uh, people want their dogs to do commands to behaviorally be better, like the sit command. When your dog gets neurotic or pulls or lunges at a dog, make them sit to break the behavior. And that dog, that's just a, a trick. It's a command. It's in the moment. That dog's foundation is is way bigger than just the sit command. How how calm are they at the house? What environments are they exposed to? Which dogs are they around? Um, how structured you are as a person with the hum- everyday variables you have as a working human being, especially now during COVID, you might have a different working situation. Some people might not have the opportunity to set that foundation, so they, go, they jump quickest to the easy way out. So to your point, that, that command is a temporary, very ephemeral Real. way of, of calming the dog, but you're not establishing a psychological culture for the dog on a, on a more permanent basis. Is that kind of yes, what you're talking yes. about? So like, like it, the dog can sit, but we're, if it's still neurotically looking at the dog or, or, or still in that impulse to where it can't control it or, and you're, you're staying in the moment while you make it sit, it's not productive. It's actually counterproductive for training. Um, your dog should learn um, how to have impulse control in its environments. It's usually where they live and people don't want to have husbandry as dog training. They don't want to add into their life. So husbandry is a is a nomenclature. It's, it's it's part of nomenclature in your world vernacular. Describe and amplify on what hus, 
husbandry means in your world? Husbandry means just adding it to your daily life. It's if you have a passion for something, even hobby sometimes or husbandry, you add it to your daily life. Um, it's got to be a lifestyle. A lifestyle. Owning a pet has to be yep. a lifestyle. You have to have, to have a passion for it. If you think this is kind of a, a chore or a routine, I go to the backyard and do this for thirty minutes, and then throw my dog to a dog run or leave him in the backyard or or just kind of let him do his thing and control you in the house when they do have that freedom when you're not watching them. You should be training 24-7 with your dog. Yeah. And that's the one thing I have learned, my wife and I have learned from you. We have a little dog, Bentley. He's a Springer Spaniel. He's uh, seven months old. He's extremely neurotic, very high energy, very difficult to, to calm down. But through your training, uh, he's about 80% improved versus the first day you and I interacted, and part of what you've taught us, and I hope our listeners grasp what you're saying, is the dog is part of our family. It's a lifestyle now. Our, our, our life changed having that responsibility, embracing that responsibility, the accountability both of us have in accepting, disciplining, and loving our dog simultaneously. Uh, before we be, be uh, amplify these different uh opportunities to talk about behavior and training let's talk about dogs themselves we're focusing on dogs today with eddie sanders and you've emphasized with us in your trainings that dogs have literally fifty thousand years of instinct and behavioral propensity talk about dogs in the wild and remind our listeners that dogs are still wild even though you put a collar on them and they're sitting on a you know five hundred dollar doggy couch, <laughs> yeah, 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 with the the chauffeur and the mansion right, and, the, and the free right. mortgage getting paid, and uh, I mean these dogs have a life where we anthropomorphize it, where we um, undo, we domesticate them out of their wild, which they do have a wild uh, tendency. Their innate abilities kick in, and um, we don't understand it because we don't want to see it. Sometimes ignorance is bliss, and we don't want to see these behaviors. My baby can't grow. My baby can't correct. My baby can't get aggressive towards another human being or dog. When it does happen, you go to these drastic steps of really, really not understanding the dog. There's a study that they did in Russia for 80 years on foxes, on domesticating them, and they really, really did a good study on it. Um, take it or leave it if it's, it's a Russian study, but um, it is definitely a study where they domesticated foxes. And you can domesticate a wild animal, and you can break a lot of the wild tendencies out of them, but you'll never take 100% of the, those in, innate abilities. Genetics will give them every single time they're out of that the birth canal, out of that mom. Or, um, and a lot of people really, really drop the ball on anthropomorphizing it and taking their dog back to the main society or hiding, hiring an obedience trainer to solve a problem where a behavioralist or somebody understands the canine species rather than this little cute puppy we just got. Sometimes that's what you have to do. You have to walk a tightrope. It is a definitely, my, these creatures to me are, are my family. I love them like kids. They're my babies, but I do understand they're wild animals in their heart, especially I own Great Danes and um, what people call pit bulls, Amstaffshire Terriers or American bullies. Um, and I can see the look of a poodle to American bullies. Like they'll look at that thing like a wild animal, but a poodle completely different, which I've owned poodles before too, which are just as, just, so they're not, actually stressed out. Notwithstanding the breed, whether it's a pit bull, a German Shepherd, a Rottweiler, a, a Springer Spaniel, or a little cute little poodle or chihuahua, they're still wild animals. Animals, even I mean, the poodles can just be just as frustrating and and, and can get just as impulse. Yeah. I have just as bad of impulse control as a pit bull can. Yeah. Um, it's just there's breed tendencies that they have. Uh, they're terriers, pit bulls. They kind of have more protective personalities. They were bred to fight in Europe. They were bred to be nanny dogs in the United States. Um, it's just hard to break these people's misconceptions of these yeah. are wild animals. And and when a dog like a pit bull finally shows his innate abilities to be a wild animal, they euthanize it. Yeah. And it makes me so sad when I come to training and you see somebody doing so good. And yeah, uh, We're going to talk about pet responsibility and pet accountability here in a minute because those are enormously powerful uh, constructs that people have to embrace unconditionally if we're going to be serious about you know, making sure your dog has a wonderful, uh, disciplined life, which is really freedom. We're going to talk about that as well. Discipline is freedom. I learned that from you as well. My guest on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Again, thank you to uh, Eddie Aragon for producing the show. Thank you to my sponsors. We're going to be bringing on some new sponsors over the next few weeks, but uh, uh, Pluma Construction is one of my sponsors. Thank you, Pluma. Again, we're with you every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. on 1600 Kiva AM. 
Tell your friends about Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria and Kiva 1600 AM. Uh, my guest today is Eddie Sanders. He is a, a dog behavioralist, and we're talking about the psychology of pets from both the dog perspective and the owner perspective. So getting back to dogs as wild animals with literally 50,000 years of of, of, of instinct and if so not forth. longer. The study it, still has it. It's just so infant right now. All dogs came from wolves, and then we bred over the last really over 150 years, not that recently, different breeds. I wanted you to talk about different breeds. Like terriers were bred to ferret out uh, vermin and rodents, Yep. and other pets were like uh, sheepdogs were literally bred to herd sheep. So animals have certain bred uh, propensities, right? Talk a little they, bit about breeds. They, 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 they fit in this family year, almost this nuclear type of family situation to where they kind of fit into that and became a family member because they were productive and they did something to provide. Especially back um, during when we didn't have technology, these things were a vital use for the family and they were tools. Um, not just tools, but tools that were family members as well. They breed, they think. Um, these dogs, like, uh, there's a, a breed I really like bringing up, a griffon breed. Um, they're out in these islands to catch rats off boats, and they got settled in one island. They jumped off and never left. So it's one of the rarest breeds. Um, they're ratters. You see dogs like sheepdogs watching and very watching out for predators. That's why they get a little more dog responsive with eye contact. Um, you have Great Danes that are boar hunters out there in the um, in for hunting and out in Germany still right now. You have, man, there's so many breed collies. There's there's the herder dogs for the ranchers getting their, their their livestock and their and what they needed for their family back in what would say the early 1800s, 1700s. Those sheep were and their livestock were very valuable. So those dogs getting them in, keeping track were. I mean, one of the biggest things for these people, one of their livelihoods, it's like owning maybe a gun back then or. Uh, or a tractor, when tractors are starting to come out, it's just as important as that to keep a livelihood. If you don't have a dog, you usually don't stay alive. Um, I think we've lost our concept or our grasp of what dogs can do. They're not just circus dogs like we are talking about earlier. They can yeah. fit a lot bigger uh, but I think you're, you're, life. You're also reminding our audience that when you're selecting a dog, look at the breed, but understand what that breed was meant for, good, bad, or ugly, and not just the, the aesthetics of the dog. Right, yeah. just the beauty, how cute the dog is. Learn more about what it was bred for, and what it was bred for is good, bad, and ugly. Like yes. my, my dog, the English Springer Spaniel, he's extremely energetic. I mean, incorrigibly, and that's his nature. And I can't. We're not going to. We're not going to breed that out of him or, or behave him out of it. All we can do is is give him certain parameters. Yeah, right. You, you can you can put some restraints on it right now, especially at his age. But Springer Spaniels is one of those breeds that. Um, a lot of uh, elderly or the elderly group of people in our community like them a lot, and it's not a good match. Yeah, not a good because match. they require a lot of attention. Attention, um, a lot of discipline, a lot of co- like boundaries, crate training at the beginning, a lot of structure, showing them what you can and can't do. A lot of exercise. And when they're imprinting, remember yeah. dogs are imprinting from ten weeks to about I would say a year and a half. And if you don't give them that structure, especially Springer Spaniels, certain breeds, especially Springer Spaniels. Uh, you'll be in for a fight, and which we've experienced yeah. with my little Bentley here in your house. We and, have, and uh, Bentley is definitely a good match for you, Candelaria. He's yeah. uh, a really good fit for you. You guys got the energy. You and your wife are a good team. Obviously, you guys have different opinions and do different things, but you meet in the middle, and we that do. is that is the best thing you can have because he's going to have best of both worlds. And you've helped us really balance ourselves and really focus and come to a consensus about how we should put certain disciplinary restrictions on the dog and certain liberties with little Bentley because you are a behavioralist and we've we struggled at the beginning because I'm a very hardcore guy as you can tell very disciplined very structured very regimented my wife is empathetic she's a nurse so she was letting Bentley be a bit more carefree and then we came in the middle and we've provided a lot of structure so getting back to breeds we we want to remind our listeners Eddie Eddie Sanders my guest dog behavioralist not to get too caught up on how cute the dog is when you're looking at selecting a dog, yeah. right? And that's very hard to do. It's when I have my breeds. I love, obviously, you've known me. I have like my Great Danes and my Pit Bulls. And uh, um, I call my little house hippo. He looks like a little house hippo. It's hard not to anthropomorphize it and not discipline, just like a child and being a good parent. Um, it is, you, you look at these things and, you're, and they have those their eyes are straightforward and they're more anthropomorphized as an animal anyway. Their eyes aren't to the side like lizards and 
they just they, they look more like humans in general when yeah. you look at them and it's just hard for people to break that and it's hard for me i mean the metaphor i use in my classes all the time is you can go on facebook or whatever social media outlet you guys like hopefully parlor um when it gets back um that you can put you hate somebody's a very strong word right i i rarely use that i don't hate anything in life it's very hard for me to use that word but people will say they hate a person very quick especially you know who we're talking about when yeah. <laughs> evil orange man right away and it's like you put i hate a puppy you're you're evil yeah you're a horrible person right you you hate a dog you're a horrible person yeah and it's 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 when it goes to that standard of a poet saying like fish love i love fish right yeah you're loving fish when you eat it but are you a biologist you study fish are you looking out for the species are you trying to research to keep them alive that's true love for the fish not yeah. eating it um and a lot of people do have fish love for dogs they don't want to do what they need to do. They see it as a little tiny human being. They'll say they love this. They, they stand out for the, the the species, and they'll say they'll nobody should hate a dog. And they'll say something on Facebook, stand up. But they'll get rid of their dog when it destroys their couch, or it pees, or it gets attacked, or they didn't do the training, or they didn't put the work in. Yeah. Do you love your dog? Yeah, we're going to talk about pet responsibility. In fact, we should probably start talking about that now. When we select a pet, a dog in this particular case, and by the way. I learned something in preparation for this show. I know instinctively I've always loved dogs. I love cats too, by the way. But what I learned that science has recently provided is the dog is the only animal in all the animal kingdom that's actually, quote-unquote, interested in what you do, you the human. Yes, yes. Think about that. Think about what we're saying here. Think about There is no other animal on planet Earth who literally will stop what they're doing and have an interest in the master. And I think that's what makes dogs so endearing as a as a pet. Who do you think found who? Do you think the, the caveman found the dog, or do you think the dog found the caveman in that cave, or wherever they were at the time? Chicken or egg. Introduced? Chicken or egg, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's who who do you think? So you think they've, the dogs actually won this game and got into our world, and we feed them and give them this? Uh... I probably do. <laughs> if I were to select a, you know, based on the limitations of your question, I think the dog selected man, and then man recognized there's there's a there's an aesthetic beauty about the animal, but he also served a function. Yep. And then that function made that person's life, you know, fifty thousand years ago better. So then he started loving the very tool that gave him a better quality of life. So it became a symbiotic relationship. That's my theory. What is love to me? I think uh, love is showing um, interest in what my interests are and what what I want to do in my life and supporting it. And my my dog does it every day. Yeah. Let's talk about pet responsibility because we, you know, we're actually moving forward a lot faster than I thought we would. The importance, you as a dog behavioralist and a trainer, you see so many sad stories of people that get their dog and then you know six months later the dog's not behaving or whatever it might be. They don't recognize how enormous a responsibility it is that they send the dog back to the kennel or to be euthanized. Talk about the importance of pet responsibility that is one of my one of the things i kind of i'm very tactful on because there's people you can tell them about what's owning a responsible dog is and they'll understand it then people when you tell them what it is it's uh it offends them because they might be doing one of these things that's causing the behavior to not have a healthy pet um i'm not a big pro activist on dog parks um i'm not a big pro activist on leaving my dog in the backyard to go nuts and bark and infringe on my neighbor's rights what why uh dog parks um, why why your reticence about dog parks dog parks to me like we just talked about for the last maybe 30 20 minutes how long i've been on here is dogs are packing animals they imprint on things um they have innate abilities to learn from a pack they sent mark to claim territory claiming territory keeps their inside their territory very calm that's why they do it um, you go to dog parks, they're scent marking everything, they're dominant playing, they're neck playing, where they're controlling the play, um, they're jumping on people at the gate, they're barking at everybody going by, and if you go look at every single complaint I've had for 15 years of my career as a dog trainer, jumping, barking, in an apartment my dog lunges at dogs or can't be quiet, every single thing that people give their dog away is because they're allowing their environments and what they do and their responsibilities just goes down as a drain for their dog. Usually dog park dogs can go uh, on a to walk to the dog park to walk. I've had dog park dogs play with each other for three hours straight. They get on a leash right outside that park because they're connected to their resource. What is their owner on the leash? Now they're with their resource. I just watched you scent, Mark. I just watched you dominantly play. 
I know you're a threat to me because I saw how dominant you were. I'm with my mom. Get away from my mom. You're talking from the dog's perspective. Yeah, yeah, from the dog's perspective. I've seen it happen a thousand times. Dogs have been playing each other for three hours. Dogs are actually quite manipulative, too. Oh, yes. Very manipulative. So remember this, folks. All dogs, notwithstanding the breed, are very manipulative. And they want to take advantage of their master because they're wild they're animals. wild animals. Well, that, that's, that's not because they have this like vindictive vendetta to control you, but innately what they're born with is if I do take over positions, maybe uncle can't provide to hunt anymore and get meat, or dad or mom can't do something and they take over that position and they're testing that position constantly. It, it leads for a healthier family unit and a healthier pack unit later on to where it, they, they need to do that in the wild, but in a, they don't live as long as humans, so in, in the human in a human world they have to kind of break down that that dominance and not let them do what they would do if they were in the wild which they still do they scent mark they 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 stare dogs down erotically like when they're they're hunting them or they're afraid of them and people just throw that down the drain and the responsibility of what they have to do goes down the drain too because they're allowing these dogs to do it and nobody tells them it's bad yeah. I don't know how many dog trainers I say, let your dogs go scent marker, let your dogs go to the dog park, which I don't mind if you have one of those dogs who can handle those those situations. You might have a very, I call them beta personality dogs that can be around a lot of dominant situations and still be a really good dog in the dog park and help your dog socialize in those ways. So when you're getting, again, my guest on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelari with you every Saturday from 1 or 2 o'clock on 1600 Kiva AM is Eddie Sanders. He's a dog behavioralist, so he understands the psychology of your dog. At any rate, when you're walking a dog on at your near your residence for a listener, right, and the dog starts to mark yeah. almost uncontrollably, you urinate. Mm-hmm. What should one do? Well, that's that's a hard one to do. It just depends on how bad the behaviors become. I start my puppies off crate training and not letting them scent mark. Um, it's hard in the neutering situation when they're. I have Great Danes. I have to wait a year and a half for neutering. Um, they will try to scent mark, they'll try to dominate, but what happens is that if you allow your dog to do it, it's just like any habit. I always say it's like cigarettes or alcoholism. If you try it, if they've been doing it two or three years, it does release, it does release dopamine. It does make them feel that they're protecting their neighborhood. It does make them feel like they're expanding their environment or their 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 control of their territory. So it does release dopamine. It, it becomes a really habit of where they need to do it. It makes them feel like that's their job to be fulfilled. Well, I want to emphasize that. to our listeners what you're saying as a dog behavioralist is when your dog, whoever you is, is urinating, you know, every, you know, 20 paces, he's marking a territory. territory. He's expanding his environment. environment. And you as the pet owner should be aware that that's what's happening. Yeah, like, I, again, like the dog park, you might have a, a dog that sent marks who's a beta personality who just does it because he just, it's what he's doing because innately that's. Maybe smelt a pheromone. He just did it. It's not. He's not aggressive. Then you have dog breeds like German Shepherds and even my breeds like Great Danes. They scent mark and they see a dog that's been scent marking who's neurotic, just like them, or maybe just as uh, assertive as them. And it's on. It's a dog fight. It's dog fight time. It's. Um, I have to pull you across the walk, the street. I have to hold you back. One owner has to go the other way. Um, some owners, like I said at the beginning of the show, they'll make them sit, that which makes the the, the problem a million times worse. I mean, it amplifies it. Um, and it's just hard for me to explain that because I'm, I'm blessed to work at the company I work for right in front of the front of where I see dogs scent mark for about nine years straight. I've seen dogs scent mark. I've seen what happens in my store. They don't come in mentally stable usually. Like I said, there's a rare occasion of a, a beta personality doing it coming in. But and getting have, back to the person who's walking their dog routinely at 530 every night and that dog is you know, urinating 20 times on that walk, should that pet owner... Try to you know retard that 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 yeah, that, and, yeah. And, and and eliminate as much of that scent marking as possible. I'm trying to get as yeah practical as yeah. Possible. If you have puppies, like I would say, from ten weeks to a year, I would say you can definitely just almost cold turkey and not let them scent mark. I have a designated area in your yard. Um, if you have a dog that's past a year and he's been doing it like constantly for that ten weeks to a year old, you might have to do it like some dogs pee thirty, forty times on a walk, maybe twenty five, fifteen times. After this week, down to five, down to zero, a month down the road. So it routinely, or it's it's pacing them off, like somebody be quitting a bad habit. It's a be really doing. important point because he's trying to expand his territory. He or she, that dog, yeah. and, and and they can lead into the house. You've seen these herder mixes, like healers sent mark their house and sent mark their neighbor's yard, and then and then they rush and charge and nip at their heels, and then they get euthanized because of the bite. And it's it's not the dog's fault. It's it's, yeah. it's user error. 
My guest is Eddie Sanders, dog behavioralist. This is Jeffrey Candelaria. Straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m., 1600 a.m. Another thing that you want to re-remind our uh, our listeners with, and I say re-remind because we're talking about wild animals and dogs in the wild, dogs are used to, for how long, a year, being in a small womb called a den, right? D-E-N, den. Talk about that whole hierarchy, the the beta, the alpha, the den, and then relate it to crating, crating. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the the den to me would be a dog's crate at the beginning of their life. Um, when you look at the dogs, I'm not saying wolves. We need, to, we need to stray away from that. Wild dogs like painted dogs in Africa, dingoes, some of these reservations dogs. We live in Albuquerque. We see these red dogs pack up all the time and have their own packs out there. They are so healthy when they have a strong presence of being an alpha male and a female, sometimes some other alphas that are coming up on the hierarchy and having a den and a safe place to be. Um, they love their den. It makes them secured and makes them have their little, it's like a, their safe spaces they have in colleges, I guess, now for kids. And um, it's just a place for them to go to dewind. It's, it's their home. It's like going home at the end of the and day. And how long do dogs in the wild and their instinct of being in a den or a crate, how long does that typically last? Their whole life. Until they die, they live in a hole. Interesting. They live in their life for their whole life in a den. They don't really break away from denning. They're not like in Africa, for example. They're not the biggest wild dogs, painted dogs, I should say, aren't the biggest animals out there. They're really skinny, actually. They're tall. So it's almost counterintuitive to the average listener, including myself, when I didn't understand this, the psychology of dogs, that... We think that a dog on a ranch or just being in a park running around all that, that's actually antithetical yes. to the way dogs actually live for thousands of years in their habitat, which was literally in a den. It's not, yeah, it's not natural sometimes, the life we give them. Um, like I was saying, the pain dogs, they, they only survive because they have they can den up, hide, and they're smarter than the rest of the animals out there. Um, they, they have a hierarchy. They have commanders, lieutenants. I mean, they, they, they really know what they're doing out there. And when we don't crate train our dog and set boundaries at a young age in our house, because your house can become the den later on. You can relinquish the crate. I always tell people that. But if you don't set boundaries like mom and dad dog do with these puppies, because they cannot survive in the wild at that age. They're learning all this stuff. They're imprinting. They take advantage of denning them up so they can imprint on every single thing that they're going to learn to survive um, with their innate abilities later on. If they can't pass on generational knowledge and they're doing whatever they want, they're just going to become this neurotic animal that maybe dies and leaves the pack and they can't survive. And as humans, we drop the ball on not thinking a crate. They anthropomorphize it. They look at it as prison. They see the bars. Um, From from the typical owner's perspective, you're saying the average owner's saying, oh, I don't want to crate my dog. That's like putting him in a prison. prison. But that's actually what we're trying to do with a crate because I've learned this myself, crating Put, putting a dog in a crate is actually putting a dog in a den, which is his natural way or her natural way of living in the wild. Yeah, well, it's not even it's giving them what they they need healthfully. Like in the wild, they do these things, and they like like in, like people think it's like in in human culture, right? Like I I heard toxic toxic masculinity that they only learn that in America. Like men only become this way in America because locker talk. What happens in the Amazon when these people haven't seen people in forever? They're just Men have innately abilities like men. Girls have innate abilities like men or girls, and they do the same thing like dogs. We, we, we construct this to where we want to mutilate what our dogs' innate abilities are, and we want to make them to where we want to fetch dog or a, a walk dog park dog or this. We can get that, but we need to be give them a dog world too. Give them yeah. what they need naturally. So the larger, Not what we think they need, but what they need. The larger point here is and our listeners were hoping to communicate this, is dogs want structure because, and hierarchy and limitations, structure, discipline, because that's what they were bred, and that's, what, that's, their, natural, that's their natural way of life in the wild for 50,000 years. They, they pick jobs, and they, and they feed on to jobs in their pack. They might be an enforcer. They might be a hunter. They might be the, some of the, a lot of the females just take care of the babies and the puppies. Um, they learn jobs in our world. Their job can be barking at the window all day. Oh. That gets me to get fed when they come home. Now my dog barks at everything when I leave the house. It barks at dogs on the walk because that's my job. 
Um, I dominate play at the dog park and I scent mark my territory, so I have to be aggressive over it later on on the leash, and that is my job to do that. So you're saying a dog will pick a particular function? No matter what, no matter what, no matter that you can even have a, like I've had special needs dogs, you know one of my dogs is deaf and epileptic, one of my Great Danes, and um, they always pick jobs. Even a, even a special needs dog has a, a job in my pack, and he knows what it is. He's my my number two in charge. He watches for things. Um, and when you lose grasp of dogs, pick jobs. They pick them themselves, and usually it's the bad ones, like neurotically defending your territory or scent marking or just defending a single person in the house or pacing in the house window to window. And if, when you put yourself into their shoes, like if you had a human kid, why would you let your human kid every time somebody passed your house? charge the window with its glock or a knife or whatever you think you have in your house to defend yourself why would you let your kids do that and that's their job to get fed and this is what you identify with in our family and this is who you are Um, my dogs have a better purpose than that my dogs have you're going to follow the leader you're going to have structured boundaries you're going to listen and my house is the calmest house i've i used to have three great danes i'm down to two great danes and a pity now and it's, I mean, it's just a calm environment. We listen to each other. It's a healthy. We take them out to Costco yesterday, their family unit. And when you lose that, giving them jobs to follow the leader, which you're the human, they live in our world. We drive in cars. We live in the society they would never see. They get killed on the streets all the time. Yeah. Um, they will pick their own jobs. And sometimes those jobs lead them to not ever live a human life. Yeah, I want to get back to what you talked about uh here a second ago, Jeffrey Candler with Eddie Sanders. He is a uh, dog behavioralist. He's actually training our dog, uh, Nancy, and my dog, Bentley. He's a little Springer Spaniel, very incorrigible personality, but we love him. And we knew he was going to be this, you know, every very energetic dog. But anyway, what I've learned from you is discipline is freedom for the dog. It sounds paradoxical, counter, you know, intuitive, almost antithetical to it in and of itself. But the more f- disciplined you give your dog and yourself as the owner, because both of you are really disciplined in a disciplined zone, the more freedom the dog has. And But what I mean by that, and I want you to amplify, I can take Bentley to Home Depot now. I can take Bentley uh, really anywhere in a park, whatever, and he's going to behave, me and or Nancy, with our, with our commands, which gives him more liberty. And he has more of a, you know, a, an expansive life. And so it, you're thinking the more discipline you give a dog, the more freedom they have, but it actually is true. It, it, it's definitely one of the biggest things that people do is give their dogs freedoms because we do, we do. We work 40 hours a week. We have to pay mortgages. We have to do all this. And then when we get home, we feel bad that our dog was in the crate. We feel bad that we have to discipline and not let him do this because he got into the trash. And we just give them the freedoms and we uh, we let them take over sometimes these things that they shouldn't. And um, taking over sometimes and giving the freedoms, like I said, now maybe you can't go to Home Depot. Maybe you can't get on the airplane and travel. Maybe you can't go out to the restaurants. Maybe you can't go out um, and take your dog to the park off-leash and have a recall right away when you see another dog. There's these freedoms that dogs get that I get complimented all the time. I think I've gotten more clients throughout my career by the way my dogs act out in public than I have by training huge classes where people look at it like, oh, that guy can control a big class, where I think I that's the hardest for me is controlling a large group situation with a lot of aggressive dogs during COVID. But they always compliment me for how calm my dogs are in public and how did you get your dogs to come into Costco? How did you get your dogs to come in here? Um, and it is a big responsibility to set boundaries so they have those freedoms later on. Um, and consistency I, and, of and consistency is consistency key. Consistency is key. Consistency is probably if you're if you're a new listener and you have a new dog, I would say consistency. No matter what trainer you get, they're all good. There's all train. No matter what trainers out there, they're all good. Um, we might have a different style, but consistency, even if it's commands. I know at the beginning of the show I said they're circus tricks, but commands can build a relationship with consistency. It can structure them to listen to the owner. But I don't think it's the cake. I think it's icing on the cake, the commands. But I just think consistency is key. And here's some things that, that I've learned from you that I think our listeners will glean. And that is when you're taking your dog on a walk, it's your walk as the master, not the dog's walk. And I'm still learning this. But when I walk Bentley, he takes control of the walk, and I'm still learning I'm in control of the walk. When my wife uh, takes Bentley at a walk, she's in control of the walk. I'm still learning that. So... You call it loose leash, loose, loose, loose leash, leash walking. Walking, yeah. and the, the point we're making again is the master, the owner, is the owner of the dog, not the other way around. 
and I've seen too many instances where the dog runs the household, and it's not it's it's not that's not good for either party, the owner or the dog. Well, then people always say, Eddie, you always go into these these words like alpha and and like their dogs like we, we are humans, we raise kids. Is even that healthy for a kid? Is that healthy for a human child? No, yeah. but they'll be hard on a kid and sit down. Talk about walking your dog and even even going outside. You you walk out first, yeah, the you, owner, not the dog. You, when you loose leash walk, it's like anything. Like with the kid metaphor, I mean, when you're at Walmart, you don't let that kid just jump on the aisles and break things. There are some kids like that, and 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 that is not a structured kid. Just like a dog on a walk, a loose leash walk is we're going on a walk. Have freedom. Get like a six foot leash if you want. Go ahead of me as long as you're not taught in the leash and. And dictating the speed and the pace. You're talking from the dog's perspective. Yes, and then you go to the side of me, switch sides, be free. But you're not going to pull to the next P to scent market to attack a dog behind a gate. Yeah. You're not going to pull me to dictate what side of the road you want to go on. We're still going at my speed, the pace I want, the walk Eddie wants. The owner's. Yes, the owner's, the the owner's, owner's speed pace. and pace. The walk, the walk you walk at to the grocery store without the dog. Um, that's the speed and pace you should walk at, and that's more enjoyable for both parties. Yeah. And I tell that to people all the time, it's it's... It's 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 not that it's we're being tyrants or dictators towards your dog because obviously you know who I am I hate that that's not my belief yeah it's dictatorship and tyrants um, but dogs need that dogs definitely need more of a dictator type because situation dogs are wild, wild animals, animals. we got to keep reminding you this is not something you know you see a dog on a TV commercial and it looks so sweet everything still a wild creature and all we can do is is basically have some guidelines around that wild behavior so that the dog has as much liberty as possible and also keep other people safe, right? Because yep. you don't want your dogs to be ferocious and mean and yeah. you know frustrated and bite people a, and all that. I could talk a whole hour about safety and how people don't understand they own a weapon. It's like, like it's a gun instructor. I think every dog trainer should be checked on federally like a gun instructor. Um, dog owners should be checked on like they can ha- having a gun if they can own one. Um, you can have an, a, a gun instructor that is super good at their job, and then you can have somebody who's unsafe, and then they have, like, a gun. It can kill somebody. The handler's responsible for that, though. And if you don't know how to handle your dog, and your dog attacks somebody, it's not your dog's fault. Yeah. I always tell people all the time, it's it's handler situation. You got the dog, you put him in your world, you made him neurotic. And if you adopted a dog in an in, in abandonment situation or a, a, a out of the dog pound with these situation, this is not going to those dog owners. It's the dog owners who usually get the puppy and um, raise them to the, do all these things, and then they then they attack like like Joe Biden's dogs. <laughs> oh, like he bit them like five six times, and they covered it Just up. Just when you were we were having a good show, you have to bring up that buffoon, that clumsy, idiotic. Well, look look at this. Let, look let's, at, let's move on. Look all at right. the responsibility of him and how responsible he is, and look at his dog. Oh my god. Well, he's not not cognitively capable of even discerning what it's like to be a pet owner, but his ratings are down to 34% as far as approval. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Eddie Sanders, dog behavioralist. So one of the things you did with Bentley is you came to our house, you, you, you understood our environment, and you customized even some training and behavioral, uh, you know, kind of protocols around our house. And you can do that for any of our listeners. What is your contact information, by the uh, way? My contact information would be uh, Eddie Sanders one That would be Eddie Sanders one at yahoo.com. Um, or you can always contact me at the PetSmart on Wyoming and Academy location. That is my home location. I am the area trainer for the district, uh, but my home location is the Academy in Wyoming location. That's on the shopping center next to Walmart and uh, Smith's. Um, my clientele right now is a waiting list. I'm sorry if you guys get to me or send me an email. Um, give me about a month. I should be able to get back to you guys on the here if you're here on the show and you guys need somebody, a behavioralist, to solve one of these problems we talked about today. Um, give me at least a month or two or contact Jeffrey on the show. Absolutely. Um, and he'll get to me. Um, but we're here to help you with any behavioral issue you have. Uh, but that's going to be at eddiesanders1 at yahoo.com or the PetSmart on Wyoming, uh, uh, Wyoming and Academy location. Um, but if you're on a waiting list, I apologize. And if you call the store, send me an email and I'll get back to you. Give me about a month and I promise, guys, I'll be there for you. Um, but during COVID and uh, during this uh, big hiatus, we got a lot of dogs during COVID. My clientele has been up tremendously. So thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey, for the plug. Jeffrey Candelaria here. Straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. We're talking about the psychology of your pet, particularly your dog, and the psychology of you, the pet owner, with Eddie Sanders, dog behavioralist. Another dog dynamic that I've learned from you that I really, you know, I was aware of, but I didn't realize 
it had that much, it, it was that cogent and that salient to dog behavior. And that's dog to dog eye contact. Talk about dog eye contact and that old vernacular, you know, dogging. Why you, mad dogging. Why are you me? mad dogging me? I always <laughs> thought that was just some stupid ghetto talk. Me but. and Jeffrey grew up in the South Valley, so you know, you understand how you don't. I did, but I never, I never understood that it actually had it, context. Its, its origin was actually dogs, dogs making not, not, not over. Again, not gangsters. Yeah. So when during World War One and Two, when you trained a, a, an animal, a dog especially, to bite somebody and be aggressive and have a, a kind of an attitude to have that, it is direct eye contact. If my dog that was trained to bite made eye contact with your dog or a human in a trench in during World War One or World War Two made eye contact with this dog, that is terms for annihilation right there. You're going to get attacked. You're going to get bit, especially if it's another dog. We lose concept of they are wild animals, again, going back to our first point. And wild animals get make direct eye contact when they want to either kill something or they're afraid. Um, and dogs do it a lot. There's some puppies who've never been socialized. They feel so bad for some of these neurotic breeds that do make direct eye contact, like Bentley Boy. Um, make direct eye contact, want to play, and don't understand. Some dogs see it as a sign of aggression and will kill you if you come near me, if yeah. you make that eye contact. And it's just hard to correlate the two and uh, make people understand that the biggest part of dog, well, my part of my, my ideologies and metaphors for my dog training style is I will not allow my dogs to neurotically stare at other animals, yeah. other dogs, other horses. So that's a very important point. Be aware, listeners, that your pet, when he's making eye contact, he or she making eye contact with another dog, that's actually a very aggressive posture, right? How many times did you, in your class, your your group class that you're in, I bring out a fake dog, and even with the eye contact, it, they tensed up, they backed up, they growled, and I showed the rear end of the dog, and it came up like it was yeah. nice to meet you. So it's it's just, it, once you come to my classes and you see these things in firsthand, then you start believing it, but there's not that many people like me. There's not that many people have devoted 15 years yeah. of their life to doing this and, and understand the eye contact and the scent marking. So what he's talking about, listeners, is, Eddie, when we go to class, there's probably 10 dogs, let's say, of all of all breeds. And when Eddie brings out this little Snoopy-looking dog that's a stuffed animal, it has big black eyes. And Eddie, as a behavioralist, will actually position that dog so that the little plastic eyes on this little stuffed animal is looking at a at another dog, and that other dog, one of the ten breeds, will actually respond either extraordinarily aggressively or be acquiescent to that. And this is just a stuffed animal. So it, just imagine a dog-to-dog eye contact. That's yeah, extremely, showing. It's, it's, it's a very provocative posture. And there's other things. That's just one of them. That's just the, that's the, I think that's the one that just is probably the top ten out of all the behaviors they do when they show... Imagine if it was a dog showing body carriaging, like a stiff body, tail was tense, eyes were nice and dilated, staring, ears were stiff and forward, held high, chest. Those dogs, everybody, just because they're not growling, they're not friendly, and I have it all the time. I'm a big public person here. I go to a lot of public stores, please people, support local. If you go out to eat, support local if you go out with your dogs. But if you, when I go out, you have people that assume that if their dog gets upstairs and is not saying anything and is tense when I come into the, the patio at Marble or wherever I'm eating, um, that that's okay. My, your dog's standing off with my dog. Your dog's telling your dog not to come in. Your, their dog's pretty much being a bodyguard. Don't come into my patio. Yeah. And just because they're not growling, it's okay. And it happens every single time I go out. It's just people don't understand dog behavioralisms, but it's not their fault. I always tell people we used to have a community back in, I think, when I was a, ooh, 10, 11. Um, you'd turn on the TV and you would see a behavioralist in the morning talking about signs of indicators. And if the dog had a yellow leash, it's ask questions. If a dog had a red leash, it was aggressive. If the dog had a green leash, go ahead and pet it. We don't have that anymore. So these behaviors that we see, especially eye contact and stiff body, um, piloerection, that's the hair standing up or hackling, um, behind the neck, usually people are kind of wearisome of that, but they will allow their dogs to get away with these behaviors, and then when they get aggressive or they fight, it's too late usually yeah. when they've done a year of it, two years of it. That's why in class, I'm so hard on everybody, and that's why it's so calm usually in class. Don't let your dog stare. Get your dog over here. Calm them down. People want commands, like our watch me command, right? What do I say? That is the most important command. Watch me or focus or yeah. meet a man, whatever you want to use. 
that that eye contact to the owner is the most crucial command you'll ever teach your dog. And what Eddie's talking about here is he's taught me and Nancy and our class that little Bentley, first of all, we, we, we ask him to sit in a sit position and to make eye contact with me and or Nancy, whoever is you know in command at that particular moment in time. And little Bentley will focus literally into my two eyes or into Nancy's two eyes. And he is absolutely like fixated on that in that moment in time and when 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 he focuses with what you just said he's able to then discern the next the next thing we want him to do or not do just basic communication between like i said eye contact between another species is aggressive like especially the dog species when it's not your pack or your family but just communication between human beings and and, and dogs and their owners what if we never made eye contact? Yeah, but the watch me command is extremely powerful. It's the most powerful it's command you can have. extremely powerful. Like at the beginning of the show, we talked about how I don't like sit to break your dog from neurosis. Your dog will see another dog from across the street. It gets, it gets really impulsive. It starts to lunge at the dog. It starts showing neurosis. A lot of, and I'm not against these trainers. By all means, if you're a trainer and you listen to this, I'm not against it. It's just there's different ways of doing things. Um, Making your dog sit and let him watch the dog go by, it makes the situation worse for the dogs because they're staring longer. It doesn't help impulse control at all. So what should you do in that situation? Watching the focus command. If if your dog's eyes are connected to you, they cannot fixate on what they're trying to get to. So if there's another dog who's aggressive, you get your dog to watch you and not the other dog. There's two leashes I tell people or uh, my pet parents all the time is that they have the physical leash and they have the emotional leash. If your dogs can't make eye contact with you and break away from neurosis, you're not going to break them away from it. Um, I'm one of my biggest keys and when I go to Costco um, or somewhere that's a little dog not friendly, you have to have a special service dog or a well-trained dog. When they see a dog, they stare at me. They don't look at anything else. What do I do? Is that dog's going to stare? I know I can't look at it. It That dog doesn't look friendly. It's neurotic. And we always walk by fine, and everybody always compliments me. It's so weird that my dog didn't bark at your dog while we walk by. Yeah. It's because my dog didn't stare at your so dog. So again, you're reminding your our listeners of a, of a very rudimentary, fundamental function, and that is to begin to have your dog, whoever you is, and your dog, to be more well-behaved. If nothing else, begin to teach them the watch me uh, protocol, yeah. which is getting your dog to literally look into your eyes and he's transfixed or she is transfixed with you. I'm, I'm telling you, it's a really interesting uh, exercise that we do with Bentley five or ten times a day. And he's transfixed. We're both looking into each other's eyes. And it's, it's a really relaxing, calming thing to do for both of us. It sounds odd. It does. But it, but it really calms both of us down, the owner and the dog. Well, it, it, you're communicating at that moment. You're with each other at the moment. Yeah. Sitting and, and just doing a command, you're not with the dog. Making them do down and your dog's not fixated or, 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 or listening to the next command with watching me or focus, it, you're, you lost your dog. It's, yeah. it, it's commands isn't everything. So uh, I go to the extent at my house, you know, Chopo, my deaf dog, um, I didn't train any commands with him for the first year. It was nothing but watch me. That's all I did. He didn't learn sit for a while because I knew he was deaf. He yeah. had to listen. He had to make eye after doing that for a year, I realized that what I did, what I knew as a behavioralist was right. Um, he's the best dog I've ever owned. He listens better than any dog I've ever seen in my life. And I go to seminars in Phoenix. I've done summits for my own company. I've worked with Lauren Morocco from the SeaWorld uh, Center when it closed down with the oh, She Trains Dogs now. And um, when you don't focus on what you know the dog listens to, like the eye contact in the wild, that's how it's everything. Yeah. They listen for guidance, um, and we drop that ball again. There's a lot of things we drop our ball on, but watch me, like you said, Jeffrey, is probably the biggest one, or the focus, or, or look, or whatever command you want to make at it. It's just their listening skills. Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelari with you every Saturday from uh, 1 to 2 p.m. on 1600 a.m. We try to bring interesting uh, material uh, you know, in terms of uh, topic and guests to the show. My guest is Eddie Sanders. He is a dog behavioralist. He's helping me and Nancy train little Bentley, our Springer Spaniel. Uh, another thing I wanted you to talk about, because we've got, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes, is dogs go through adolescence. Yeah. They have teenage years, and that teenage year period is extremely meaningful in in having imprinting, you know, what the dog's imprinting and how you're, you're you know, interacting with a dog. Talk about dog, their teenage years or adolescent years. Well, that's probably the most or important months, thing. months, actually. It's months. 
um, probably the most important thing we talk about in the show, even though everything else is important, because the rate of dogs getting returned um, right now to the Humane Society and euthanized in states that do have 24-hour kill shelters where if you don't pick them up, you are dead the next day. Um, we we're lucky in Albuquerque where we don't have the 48 or 24 hour kill shelters, but they do euthanize dogs. Um, if they're there, I think, I don't know what the time period is. I don't want to quote anything that's wrong, but they do have a good amount of time to stay with us. But there's a lot of dogs returned because people do not understand from 10 weeks when you get your puppy from the breeder or you have your own puppies at birth to about, I would say six months, you're in your honeymoon period with your dog. Your dog is relying on you to potty train, to guide it, to maybe feed it. Um, it's learning how to walk. It's learning how to teeth. It's learning its world. So, yes, you're going to have potty training issues. You're going to have uh, destructive issues with chewing. You're going to have um, keeping me up at night, doing the potty training, crate training when it whines, getting it socialized. It's nervous of dogs, taking it to group classes to help that out. Um, those things are hard, and the dog acts really nervous when it's young in a group setting, especially where we work at my PetSmart. You see how neurotic how it can get there. Yeah. Um, and people really think they're struggling at that moment, and I tell them, no, you count, your, <laughs> count your blessings now. When their dog reaches, some dogs mature differently. I, see, I think females mature a little bit quicker than males do. Um, but dogs, I would say around six months to about ten months old in between there, they start learning their motor skills, start kicking in. Their cognitive skills start getting higher. In the wild, this is when they'll start shadowing and learning generational knowledge from the parents. So they'd be out of the den more. They'd be learning things. They'd be imprinting on things. Six to ten months. Yeah, six to ten months. That's when they're going through that. Usually, and sometimes ten. Some dogs mature differently. But right around then, around ten months, I would say, they rebel in the house. My dog's jumping over the wall and escaping. He's getting aggressive towards dogs because we didn't socialize him. Um, he is now manipulating us because now his cognitive skills are high and he's been with us for four months. Yeah. Um, that's when they take the dog back to the Humane Society. Or there must be this uh, million ranch, like ranches out in Albuquerque, because I always hear we took them to a ranch. Um, but they get rid of their dog and they try again and it hurts my heart with another puppy because they didn't want to set boundaries when they were young, when they're imprinting. But that adolescence mode you should be in there imprinting setting boundaries like we talked about freedom is uh boundaries is freedom um if you don't set your boundaries then and take advantage when they're not cognitively smart they're not motor their motor skills can't they can't do the chase game and run from you and take your shoe that's when you should set those boundaries and take advantage when they're easy but people want to do it when they start having bad behavior so it's hard to explain that, but I've been working with group classes and non-group classes, privates, agility centers. I think I've got a better taste of how Albuquerque runs and how people are. Um, we have a good community. It's rare that we get that here, but there have been some cases during COVID that they're going back to work and they didn't set the boundaries. Now their dog destroys their house when they go to work because they have abandonment anxiety. Yeah. So These are all dynamics that are very subtle that can be very overt when you return back from your home after, you know, a year and a half of this Chinese virus. At any rate, uh, straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Again, the point is your dog, whoever you is, seven to ten months, whatever proclivities or propensities or tendencies that dog's going to have during that adolescent period, seven months, ten months, whatever, they're going to be stronger, smarter, either more manipulative or whatever those behaviors are, they're going to be exaggerated and you as a dog owner need to be aware that those behaviors are going to be exaggerated during that dog's adolescent period. Yeah, and it's not the owner's fault. A lot of people come into my class and like, I did something wrong. So how many people are like me out there who can understand this and explain it? It's a, um, it's a very small world of us out there who have been doing this longer than 10 years. It's a very hard career to have. It's, it's, a, it's, it's hard to get results because it's not up to you. It's up to the owner. Yeah. So it's uh, it's it's hard to not make people feel bad. They might do something. So if we've said, if said anything on the show that you've been doing with your dog or you're doing now, I know you didn't know what you're doing. It's don't take offense to anything. You're there to we're there to help you. Um, I can even plug another trainer in town. Um, um, I don't like doing it that much because she does use prong cars, but Akuma in town and Trish, she has your back with some stuff. Um, but there's not that many of us out there. Um, of us trainers who help people out. So if you're, you get offended by something, you didn't know this or you returned a dog, we're here to help you now. This is why we're here on the talk show today. That's why Jeffrey's here for you guys. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've learned a great deal. I'm a, I've had dogs all my life, you know, and uh, I thought I was doing the right thing and I'm a structured, disciplined guy. 
And I was doing a lot of things that are actually antithetical to what dogs, because they're wild creatures, really want and expect uh, from their mother or their alpha dad in the den situation that I wasn't providing. But I'm still learning uh, with little Bentley. And that brings me to one of our final uh, points here, and that is socioeconomic position, culture, and dogs. So, again, because this is Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria, and I'm known for being very direct and transparent, when I grew up on South Broadway, a kind of a blighted area of Albuquerque back then and even now, again, I'm sorry, it just is, we had dogs for function. They served a purpose. We had our dogs outside all the time. Chained up. We chained our dogs. I'm ashamed as an adult person here on, you know, in a big forum with radio to admit that our dogs were chained. I am so, you know, I, I have such remorse for that. And I didn't recognize how cruel that was to the animal. But dogs served one purpose back then, and that was this. My grandfather had, a, a you know, tools and the dog served the purpose of being a watchdog. And he was ferocious, our dogs, because you'd be ferocious too if you were chained to a six-foot, you know, I mean, that's your, that's your whole world, six feet. And you feet. get fed there. And, and you, you get your fed there, there. And you have to defecate there. Yeah. And you have to urinate that's there. Your, that's your, and it's that's just, your territory. I feel, looking back on that, I felt awful. But because there was a socioeconomic component... I guess he couldn't afford a burglar alarm, so that was our burglar well, alarm. Not, not even that. So I, I'm not judging. I'm just saying a lot of people, because of their socioeconomic position, have dogs to serve that kind of a function. Yeah, yeah. yeah I grew up in the South Valley um, in Kenny Brick, and it's uh, um, we had chows that would protect our our neighbor and our our yard. They would steal our battery out of our car. They would steal like stupid the, the dumbest thing out of the front of our yard every morning. And it's we had chows out there to protect. We threw bones. They were chained up. They had fleas and ticks. We'd get them treated maybe once every five years. Yeah. Um, I look back at it now, and I, I don't feel like a bad dog owner, and I know you're going to have listeners who've done the same thing. Um, I don't look bad as a dog owner. I just didn't have guidance. Nobody told me what to do with these animals. They're yeah. just dogs. They don't, they're not family members. Um, even leaving the South Valley, going from Rio Grande uh, high school in ninth grade to La Yeah, Cueva. we're not picking on the South Valley. We're yeah. just using that as an example. Yeah. You um, and I happen to be I went from... to Rio Grande to La Cueva and moved up to Sandia Heights on Life Oak and Tramway Lane. And yeah. it's been, uh, we had a Pomeranian that we did the same thing to, but in a different situation. We let him in the backyard. We let him bark at windows. We let him scent mark everything. Those chows and the Pomeranian, even though I was walking them every day, leaving them in the backyard, he was still had a horrible life. I mean, he didn't. He had so many neurotic jobs to do. He would attack people when he would see him. He barked at everything he would put down in the house. It would sound like a knock on the door. Uh, he would lunge at everything. Um, he had a combined life. You couldn't take him anywhere. He'd attack. He'd pee on people's stuff. He couldn't bring anything new in the house because he would scent mark it. Um, so they're both situations from being in the South Valley to this, end up in the Heights they're both the same situation to me. They're both being mentally not structured and they're both different abuses to me. And I'll be a humble trainer and I grew up doing the same thing with my dogs. And when these trainers aren't humble, because I can guarantee you is there's no Cesar Mulans and Eddie Sanders and these other good trainers out there back in the nineties and to early two thousands, we had backyard dogs. I mean, there were some structured trainers out there, maybe show dogs, but they still, that's all you saw. Even in the Heights, you just saw dogs chained up. So, But as we begin to conclude, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria, my guest, Eddie Sanders, is when we allow our dogs to do whatever they want to do, they're going to see whatever they're going to do, whether it's eye contact with other dogs or urinating all the time or barking all the time or jumping. Those are jobs. Just, dogs want to fill a vacuum, just like physics hates a vacuum. Dogs want to fulfill jobs. And when we don't put guidelines and, you know, governorship on these behaviors, that dog will do it themselves, right? I mean, that's probably the overarching lesson from today's show. And then when they're wild animals, like everything we just talked about, they pick wilder jobs like to defend. I mean, that's, they're protecting their family. You throw dog food out there after that in the afternoon. You don't, people don't realize that that might not be the reason they're aggressive. My chow, um bit me when I was a kid on my shoulder that we had to euthanize him. He was so aggressive. And um, my mom didn't understand why he bit me. I yeah. do now as a behavioralist. I understand 100% why he bit me now. Yeah. I was a spunky little boy, ran straight up to him, made direct eye contact. He had a litter of puppies about a week ago. I didn't know the behavioralisms. He mauled me. 
I wish to God we would never have. He's stitched. a wild animal. He was I would have got he, stitches, he, and my dad would never he him. was doing what he, you know, just does naturally. Again, I want to also talk a little bit about leashes because there's the those kind of leashes that will bite into the neck of the dog. I forget what those are called. Prong collar, yeah. And then you've collars. got just a standard leash. What we use uh, with Bentley for a lot of training is the the leash that it it, it restricts their muzzle a little bit. Uh, what is that called? It, it restricts their eyes and their muscles, so they can't really stare. So talk at about things. leashes and dogs as we begin to conclude here. So I've been in the the training world for now, I would say about fifteen years. Um, my first five years was probably a learning experience, being out there, learning from other trainers, working, using things, seeing what works and what doesn't work. And what I would say that I know that doesn't work are choke chains, choke chains, like the cinch collars, prong collars, and e collars. I again, listeners, if I know you're out there and you're using one, because there's a lot of people who promote them. My store, my company, actually sells these products. Um, I'm not, if, I'm, I'm not against it if there's a need for it, but it is not the best way to train your dog. Those boundaries you set in your house should make respect, not the collar. The the crate training, not the collar. Um, you use pain as fear. Um, I always use Guantanamo Bay as a kind of a, a metaphor for it. They didn't get any good successful information out of that. Um, they got maybe one, maybe one percent of what they told them was true. Once they started building wells out there in Afghanistan in the Middle East, uh, they started getting information because they started doing something positive for them. Um, they started telling. They got, I think, what ninety percent of the material they got from these people were right because they were. You're doing saying something. negative conditioning like the the choke collar it leads you're not to gonna, you're, you're gonna you're not gonna get positive results. You won't. You'll get results, but it might be results in the moment. Like right. I'm only gonna listen with the choke chain on. It's a placebo effect. Um, it's, I'm only going to listen when it's there. And then you have to go to those tactics that's super aggressive. There's other ways to do that than bite so your dog in the neck. an alternative leash to avoid eye contact, like you mentioned, are the, is the, what, what is that? Uh, gentle leader. I love gentle leaders. Gentle I like easy leader. walks. Gentle and you know what? Leader. I don't even like using products right away. I think you can get it done. But in your situation with Bentley, that guy is a spitfire, man. That guy is a rocket. Yeah. Um, I I know what I'm doing, so I crate train, I set boundaries. I don't have to use products for my dog to respect me on the leash, but people didn't get that. Some people need, like when you came with Bentley, he was already hyper. They need a gentle leader. When you control their eyes, you control where they're going. So the gentle leader for our listeners controls not so much the, the dog's body in and of itself, but the, actually the eyes, mm-hmm. where the eyes They can open go. their mouth, they can pant still with it on. What yes. it does, it's like using a, a braille for a horse. I've trained horses, too. When you control their eyes, you control everything. Um... Or you can use techniques like Caesar does. He does the butt nap, a little growing pinch thing he does. I know he has a definition for it. I just probably mutilated it. Um, but you can break them out of neurosis with different techniques. Um, you don't have to use a choke chain. But again, that goes to the whole talk we just had. They didn't want to crate train. They didn't set boundaries. They didn't understand dog adolescence. They went to the dog park. Um, then their dog is not going to ever walk on the leash. I mean, you're setting your dog backwards on everything you did for being good on the leash right yeah. there. Um and I won't do any of that stuff. So my dog usually doesn't need it, but I know there's a lot of people. I don't have a Springer Spaniel. I don't have a Karen Terrier. I mean, I don't have these little whippity breeds. So um, it's the best alternative to use something a little more passive because with all the boundaries you're setting in the house, you shouldn't, you're going to feel like a dictator, man, choke chaining them out, prong carring. And it always boggles my mind as a dog trainer that when I tell them to crate train and set boundaries with their dog, and they walk in with a prong collar, they think I mean for, for crate training my dog, but they're over there choking their dog out with metal spikes on yeah. their trachea, which See, doesn't I, have much... I, I thought, again, straight talk with Jeffrey Candler, just got a couple of minutes left with Eddie Sanders. I thought when you suggested the crate, C-R-A-T-E, that that was going to be kind of a cruel thing to do. You know, I've learned now the dog actually revels in the crate 90% of the time. And when we put him to bed... Well, right now, little Bentley's in his crate. So when I get home, I'm going to say calm to set the tone. I'm going to bring him out with a leash. He's going to calmly get out because he didn't before. <laughs> We're going to take him outside so we can urinate, maybe defecate. He's going to do a zoom because he zooms around. And zoomies are natural. And, and we let him get some of the energy out. And I'm going to take him back in his crate until we get fed or till we walk him later on tonight. But he's in his crate probably 75% of the time. And he's... A very robust dog. And I thought that was, again, antithetical to being a good pet owner. But learning, that's their den. That's what wild animals like dogs really 
crave. Well, that's going to give you no crate later on. My dogs right now, now that I'm here, they're just laying on the couch where I bought them their own couch. It's their couch. Um, but they're laying where their crates used to be on that couch. Um, they don't get into the trash. They don't bark at people. I have, I have butter on the counter. They don't bark at people. They don't jump. Um, they don't do anything where they need the crate anymore, and it's taken away. Um, but I used it for a while. It's, it was used for a, a long term for my dog training. It was to set boundaries with it. Um, you have people telling people the opposite, though, and that's why they have issues. They think, like you just said, it's counterproductive. You don't think that's going to calm them down. Dogs like routines. If you take them to the dog park and you keep walking them and you let them get neurotic over and over and over and over again, now you have a neurotic dog. You have a crate, you get a calm dog. We've got about two minutes uh, straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaire. It's been a fascinating discussion here with Eddie Sanders, dog behavioralist. Got about a minute and a half. Anything we didn't touch on that you want to talk about? No, just guys, if you guys get a dog, you have to understand this is a lifelong dedication. This You should have a passion for the process of training the dog. You should want to get home and want to crate train and take your dog out and train him. Set boundaries boundaries for your dog. Make training husbandry. If you don't enjoy the process and you don't and love this creature like a like your baby and you want the best for it, I would suggest like a maybe a cat or something else. But it is it takes a big responsibility. And if you love your dog and you didn't get the right guidance, my name's Eddie Sanders. Um, Eddie Sanders one at yahoo.com or Petsmart in Wyoming and Academy. Eddie Sanders, thank you again for being a guest on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria for taking the time. And thanks for training a little Bentley. Thank you again, Eddie Otagon, for producing the show every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. on 1600 Kiva AM. And again, folks, uh, download the Rock of Talk app on your phone. Jeffrey Candelaria, have a great remainder of your weekend.